We do call it Good Friday around this time every year for thousands of years. Christians have gathered together and have labeled this day Good Friday. It is the most somber day in the Christian calendar. So it begs the question, what's so good about Good Friday? It is the most somber day in the Christian calendar, and yet the church calls this day Good Friday. It is ironic, because this day especially, we set our minds on a crucified Savior. This day especially, we center our thoughts on the horrific death of Christ. And yet we would call it Good Friday. So the question is, what is so good about Good Friday? And as is so often the case with the ironies that we find throughout Scripture, as you start to probe the name, you start to see truths of the gospel. As you ponder what is so good about Good Friday, you are quickly led to articulate that Jesus died for sinners. We call it Good Friday because his awful death on the cross was the means by which we are reconciled to God. We call it Good Friday Because a crucified Savior means that today you may be called a child of the living God. We call it Good Friday because his death on the cross was our payment for sin. Now Mark's account that we've read, chapter 15 of his gospel narrates to us the trial, the crucifixion, the death and the burial of our Lord Jesus, Mark's account, in a similar manner, consistently makes use of irony. Much the same as we would dare to call this day good, Mark gives to us in these 47 verses many ironic plays on the gospel, situations that run contrary to theological truth. Situations which on the face of it make no sense at all. But as we uncover them, we find there glorious realities of our salvation. So my hope in our short time together this evening would be to try to get our arms around the entire chapter, not at all attempting to cover every verse but really a high-level overview observing just a handful of the ironies that Mark weaves into his narrative, thereby leading our hearts in worship as we are reminded afresh of the truths of the gospel. What would some of those ironies be? I have four in total. The first one I've labeled an irony of kingship. 
an irony of kingship, and it begins when Jesus is brought before Pilate. The Jews were bothered by Jesus above all things because they understood him to be a blasphemer. Such an accusation would not have troubled the Roman government. They didn't care that the Jews were offended by blasphemy. And so the Jews augmented their accusations against Jesus. They added to them so as to get an audience with Pilate. And so we read elsewhere, specifically in Luke's gospel, that the Jews brought to Pilate charges against Jesus to the effect that he refused to pay his taxes, that he did indeed claim to be a king, and that his desire was to overthrow the Roman government. Now with those charges, Pilate was bound to hear their case. Now it became an issue that concerned the Romans, and thus we see that beginning of chapter 15, Jesus is led away and delivered over to Pilate by the Jewish authorities. In verse 2, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? What this does is it then sets into motion a series of iterations of that title throughout this chapter. Over and over again, intentionally, Mark brings us back to that foundational accusation. First in verse 2, then again in verse 9. He answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Again in verse 12. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Again down in verse 18. They began to salute him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And then one last time in verse 32, let the Christ, the king of Israel, a synonymous title, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe him. So over and over, Mark is intentionally bringing this accusation before our eyes, reminding us, that they were mocking him. After Pilate poses the question thereafter, every use of this title is leveraged so as to mock Jesus, so as to make fun of him. They're being sarcastic, and and the, the sarcasm and the mockery is depicted in a very graphic way in verses 16 through 20 when they actually begin to dress him like a king. They put on him a purple cloak, the color worn by royalty. They put on him a crown of thorns. And they begin to salute and bow down to him, all the while mocking him for this supposed claim that he was the king of the Jews. The irony, of course, is that that's exactly who Jesus is. The irony is that's exactly who Jesus is. Now, Jesus' understanding of himself and his mission differs wildly from Pilate's intended question. That's important to note. In verse 2, when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He intends to ask him, 
Are you the one that they say you are, an insurrectionist that intends to overthrow the Roman government by force? Jesus' answer, you have said so, is a very subtle way of implying what you and I understand by that term are worlds apart. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the king of Israel, and in turn, he's the king of the whole world. But as you probe that irony, you're forced to consider incredible gospel truth. Specifically, that Jesus came in accordance with Old Testament expectations, not that he would come with violence. Not that he would overthrow the government. Not that he would intend to cause trouble, but rather that he would come in peace. He would come in all humility and meekness. That Jesus would come not to wage war against his enemies, but to lay down his life so as to reconcile his enemies unto himself. That is the nature of his kingship. And properly considered as you work through the Old Testament expectation of this Messiah, you'll eventually come to understand that his mission was one where he would suffer for the sake of those who would hate him. This is the first irony that Mark presents to us, and it is intended to lead us in a consideration of Christ our King. The second irony is one that I've labeled an irony of exchange. An irony of exchange. Pilate, it should be noted, had a disdain for the Jewish people. The history books record he had no regard for them. He looked down on them. And yet, at the same time, he feared them. He feared the Jewish authorities because he understood that they could very well go to his superiors. They could bring reports of his failing, of him not being a strong leader, and he could be taken out of his office very quickly. And so Pilate felt very much bound to the whims of the Jewish authorities. He often felt that he had to follow their leading and their demands, and thus he understanding something of the lack of guiltiness amongst, for, against this man, nevertheless handed him over. In verse 6, Pilate embarks upon what appears to be a custom at this time of the year, the release of a prisoner without any consequences. And so Pilate brings out this man, Barabbas. Barabbas genuinely had been part of an insurrection, genuinely had been part of an uprising against the government, and in that insurrection had killed at least a man, if not more. And Pilate presents to them Barabbas and Jesus. And it seems that Pilate is now somewhat desperate to secure the release of Jesus, understanding in some way that he does not deserve the charges that seem inevitable. And so he says, his leading question, verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Not which 
prisoner would you have me release? Hoping to tip the balance of the crowds towards Christ, he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? The chief priests, sensing that this is a, a moment of decision for the crowd, act quickly and stir them up so as to appeal for the release of Barabbas. Pilate then appeals again, verse 12, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? All but stating his innocence, Pilate wants to avoid the sentence that is on the way, What shall I do with this man? And now they cry out, crucify him. Again, at the bidding of the the chief priest, they're now crying out for his death, not merely the release of Barabbas, but very definitely the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate tries one more time. What evil has he done? And on the third time, they all but ignore him. They don't even acknowledge the question. They simply shout out all the more, crucify him. And thus, Pilate, weak in his leadership, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having Jesus scourged, delivered him to be crucified. His sentence has now been established. His scourging, preemptive for the crucifixion, often enough to kill a man. Should he live through that, he would then go to be crucified, the most painful and gruesome form of death known at that time in the world. Of course, as we consider this scene in chapter 15, we see a subtle irony. The crowd are being stirred up in their own sin and by the evil intents of the chief priests, they're being stirred up in sin to call out for the crucifixion of an innocent man, forcing the release of a criminal unknowingly all the while forging a depiction of the gospel. The innocent suffer and die that the guilty may go free. All the while in their efforts, in their frenzy, they are oblivious to the reality that for us, the reader, as we consider Mark's narrative, we see an enactment of gospel truth. That as you put your faith in this man who was crucified, you, the criminal, may go free. The gospel reality that would later on be written about by many of the apostles in their epistles to the church, that Christ knew no sin and yet he became sin for us on our behalf such that we would go free. In fact, even more than that, that we would be credited with his perfect righteousness. Maybe not a murderer in the sense of Barabbas, and yet all of us guilty before a holy God for an infinite amount 
of sins. An infinite number of inflections of our hearts and our minds. An infinite number of words that have not honored God. An infinite number of actions that we have pursued that run contrary to God's good and perfect will for his creation. And thus we all stand condemned before him. And Jesus, the innocent one, is crucified. To put your faith in him is to find forgiveness. Is to walk free as Barabbas did that day. The third irony is an irony of control. An irony of control by which I refer to the many participants that led to Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate, the Jewish authorities, the Romans, the crowds, all of them in some way believing themselves to be in a position of authority, and control over Jesus. Very much portrayed to us in the gospel narratives according to his humanity. Very much weak, crying out for help. And so Pilate understands, perceives that he is authoritative over Jesus. I have control over your destiny. The Jewish leaders believe exactly the same thing. The Romans believe exactly the same thing. And for them, it is acted out again in a very visual way as they cast lots for his clothes. They offered him wine. They crucified him. They cast lots, dividing their clothes, his clothes amongst them. They understood that they had the upper hand. He was pinned to the cross, so they're not, they're not fearful of him coming back. And then the crowds, not far from the city was Jesus crucified, so many crowds came out to see him, and they walked by mocking him, wagging their heads at him and, and mocking him, saying, save yourself, come down now and save yourself. This irony of perceived control is made plain when you understand that all the while they are simply fulfilling the will of God. They're simply fulfilling the ordained will of God. Mark chapter 15 is full of illusions and echoes back to Old Testament scriptures that prescribe this would be the means by which my chosen Messiah would die. Jesus himself, just a few chapters earlier, had said, I am going to Jerusalem where I'll be spat upon and mocked and killed. He had given these very predictions. Now they were coming to pass. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet, many hundreds of years earlier, had said they would lead him like a lamb unto the slaughter and he would not open his mouth. Hence, Pilate questions him. Will you make no answer, verse 4? And he does not respond. And then in Psalm 22 especially, 
the psalmist talks about the crowds walking by, the righteous sufferer wagging their heads, mocking him. The psalmist talks in Psalm 22 about the reality that they would divide his clothes according to lots. And just to make plain to us that this is all in accordance with God's will, Jesus himself cries out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, Laba Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first verse of that psalm. Jesus is crying out a genuine cry to his heavenly Father. At the same time, making plain this is all in accordance with his will. Thus, when they mock him and say, come down and save yourself, what they are foolish, what they fail to see, is it is by staying on the cross that he is securing salvation for many. Jesus could have come down in his authority and power, and yet he remains in perfect accordance with the will of the Father, thereby securing salvation for many. This is the irony of control that Mark leads us to consider. Everything is happening according to God's perfect will. And the last one is what I've labeled an irony of discipleship. An irony of discipleship. When you read Mark's gospel in particular, he places a heavy emphasis on the responsibility of the disciples to follow Christ. Arguably more than the other three gospel authors, Mark is particularly concerned to show to us the responsibility of all who see Christ to respond. Discipleship. Pick up your cross and follow after him is Mark's message to any that would read his gospel. And so even here in chapter 15, as he is concerned predominantly to narrate to us the death of our Lord Jesus, at the same time, he is showing us hints of this discipleship theme, each one in a subtly ironic manner. First of all, we consider the Roman. The Roman who responds, noting truly this man was a son of God, verse 39. It's difficult to affirm with certainty what exactly the Roman meant by his confession. There is an absence of the article in the original, more literally, surely this one was a son of God. And in the Roman Empire, that title was, was common, at least more common than it would be in our understanding today. Anytime an emperor had a son, he would declare to the empire, here, the Son of God. It was a title of authority. And so, perhaps, more likely, at this moment, the centurion is acknowledging the authority of Christ 
without necessarily attributing to him deity, perhaps. And yet I believe Mark includes it in a very literary manner for us to gain the significance of Jesus being the Son of God. In his gospel as a whole, there are three announcements of such. At the very beginning, God himself from heaven says, Here is my Son, in whom I am well pleased at the point of Jesus' baptism. Around about the midpoint of the gospel, at the transfiguration, again, God speaks from heaven, Behold my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then there is one final declaration at the end of the gospel, this time not from God, but from a Roman centurion, from a Gentile, to whom Mark was predominantly writing. From a Gentile, he makes a confession that aligns at least in word with what God had said about this man, speaking most likely better than he knew. Mark includes it here, I believe, because he wants for us to make the same confession. To look at Christ crucified and say, I see the Son of God slain for my sin. And then consider this man, Simon, verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Again, Mark is writing, first and foremost for a Gentile audience, most likely one that was in Rome. He doesn't include this detail as a nice-to-have most likely includes mention of Simon because he was known amongst the recipients of this gospel. In fact, in the closing chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, he makes mention of a certain Rufus. Most likely that Rufus in the last chapter of Romans is the same Rufus we find mentioned here the son of the man that carried Jesus' cross. And Simon, no doubt, in this moment would have been torn. He had nothing to do with this man. He had nothing to do with this trial. Undoubtedly, he didn't want to get caught up in it. And to some degree, perhaps realizing that he was now facilitating the crucifixion of Christ by carrying this cross and going with him out to the place of the crucifixion, he was now aiding the death of this man. And yet again, in a very literary manner, in a very literal sense, Simon depicts for us Christ's call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross And follow me. And thus, as Christ goes out to die, Simon becomes representative of that call unto discipleship, carrying a cross behind the one who was to be crucified. And then, lastly, consider the women. 
Verse 40, there are also women looking on from a distance. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. They were at a distance, most likely because the crucifixion was too much to watch. Too much to bear, too much to take in. They wanted to keep back so as to not see all of the gruesome realities of this man being nailed to a tree. Yet again, God ordains that they would see that he died. He ensured that they bore witness to the fact that this man died on a cross. They also bore witness, note verse 47, to the place where he was laid. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Not an incidental detail, but a preparatory detail, an anticipatory detail. Mark is including it here at the end of this solemn, dark chapter of Scripture because he knows what's coming. On Sunday, it will be our joy to celebrate that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. These women, seeing that he died, seeing where he laid, would be the first privileged witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb. And thus the angel in Mark 16 instructs them to go and proclaim the glory of the resurrected Christ. Again, as much as they try to keep their distance, God is working to ensure that they are falling into line with Mark's anticipation of discipleship. Not least a celebratory proclamation that Christ is risen. And so you see there are ironies all the way through the account of our Lord's death. The irony of them calling him a king, not realizing that's exactly who he is. The irony of supposing that they were Sending him to the death, releasing Barabbas, a guilty man, with no further implications, and yet all the while enacting the glorious truths of the gospel. The irony of them believing that they were in control. Failing to understand that God was presiding over every breath, every thought, every step to ensure that his plan would come to pass. His son would be crucified. The irony of discipleship. Three different parties. All partaking in different ways in this scene. Communicating to us subtle yet certain notes of what it means to follow Christ. If you have never come to terms with Christ's death as the only means by which you would be reconciled to God. If you have never thought upon the death of Jesus as the only prescribed plan of God by which you can be reconciled to Him with your sins atoned for, with your 
righteousness being received from Christ and not your own efforts. If you have never thought through these ironies, I want to encourage you to live tonight. To live. To look at the crucified Christ whom we worship. To find in Him your salvation. Nowhere else. Not in Christ and something else. Not there. Not in another system, another worldview, another idea as to how you might deal with your sin, but to finding Christ the only means of salvation. To accept Him as He says He is, and so to live. May it be true for everyone here this evening that the crucified Christ is to us a Savior. Pray with me to, to close. Our Father, as our hearts are heavy at the reality of the death of Christ, at the same time we are able to declare this Good Friday. It is a good day because his death made a payment for our sin. It is a good day because you sent your son so as to fix our greatest problem, namely our sin against the holy God. And as we ponder these ironies in Mark 15, as we see this account unfold, we marvel at your wisdom. We marvel at your goodness. We marvel at your glory in sending your Son to die on a cross. We confess our sin. We confess our sin without reserve. Father, move in the hearts of anyone who is holding back from such a confession. We confess our sin unreservedly before you and wholeheartedly receive the payment made by Christ on our behalf. Nothing else, nothing in addition to Christ and Christ alone. Father, strengthen our faith. Lead us in worship. Cause us to rejoice in the crucified Savior who is our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.